Um, so last day we were uh, looking at Gnosticism, and uh, I spent a more than I, time than I probably wanted in some ways uh, talking about the concept of heresy. Uh, heresy is an very important concept in the history of the church because the church claims to know the truth, claims that in the Holy Scriptures, as they have been delivered to us, we have the truth, truth about God, truth about the world, truth about our, our, who we are. Uh, it's very obvious to anybody living in this world that the human condition is flawed, it's problematic, and you've had a host of answers over the years, and we as Christians affirm that the answers about our human condition are found in the Scriptures, in the Bible. The Bible is the, the container of truth about God. Uh, obviously not everything about God. God's infinite. The Bible's not infinite in terms of its pages, right? Um, the uh, truth about salvation, uh, the truth about our human condition, that we are fallen, that the most important thing that we have to realize about ourselves is we're sinners, uh, that the most uh, biggest problem we have is not ignorance, which many of the Greeks thought they had. Um, it's not uh, death, uh, which has been thought down through the years, but sin. Uh, the reason why we die is because our forebears, Adam and Eve, sinned. And that heritage has come down to us. If we were without sin, death wouldn't be a reality. But death has uh, come into the world, Romans 5, through sin. And therefore, is, that is the fundamental issue that is at the heart of the human condition. And as you look around the world today, uh, war, um, economic challenges, even, even the natural uh, groaning of the world... Romans 8, uh, has all got to do with the way in which humanity uh, rebelled against God, and we have continued that rebellion. And uh, the solution is found again in Holy Scripture, that God has not left us to our own devices. He could have, but he has not, because of his nature as a God of love, and sent his son, sent himself. Uh, he himself came into this world. Uh, we saw this with the letters to Diognetus, uh, the uh, this very fundamental part of Christian teaching, early Christian author uh, who wrote the letter to Agnes is very aware of it. Um, and uh, the, the emphasis on biblical truth, that there is such a thing as truth, such a thing as orthodoxy, and then over against that, there's such a thing as heresy. And it's not heresy, as some have said, for instance, in the 20th century, uh, to not believe in a premillennial rapture. Uh, some of us don't believe in a premillennial rapture. I don't. I'm an Amil. Um, and that's not heresy. It's a different way of re reading Revelation 20 and some of the prophets. It's not heretical. Um, we have different views on baptism. We might have different views on church governance. So I did my academic uh, training um, at Wycliffe College. Wycliffe College is an Anglican college. Uh, they have six principles that kind of undergird the college. Uh, the fifth principle is the principle that in the historic episcopate, the bishops, uh, the Lord has given us a primitive vehicle for unity. And uh, they did recognize that students coming into the school might not affirm that. I didn't affirm that. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit about bishops tonight. The other five fully affirmed. So I differ with 
Uh, you may or may not. I don't know all your backgrounds, obviously. Uh, I suspect if you're, well, I suspect I, if you are a member of, uh, of West Highland, you're committed to a congregationalism. You're not committed to Episcopalianism as the Anglican Church is, and some Methodists, and so on. In other words, there's a variety of things that we can agree to disagree on, and they're not heresy. Uh, but heresy is the denial of the fundamentals of the faith, the truth that is absolutely essential in the scriptures to be a Christian. And we talked a little bit about last week about the concept of heresy, which, as I said, we spent, we spent our time looking at heresy, but over against that is the concept of orthodoxy. Right? If, there's a her if there's heresy, there's orthodoxy. If there's truth, there's falsehood. And uh, tonight we're going to look at an author who uh, seeks to emphasize the truth over against the particular heresy that we also looked at last week, which is Gnosticism. Uh, the belief that the central problem with the human condition is ignorance. The real problem with human beings, according to Gnostics, all of them, they all agreed on this, is you just don't know who you really are. That uh, if you start to probe into things, you will find out that you are actually, indwelling you is a bit of divinity. Uh, there's this inner God or goddess in you. And uh, I saw a, uh, a woman's magazine the other week, uh, Unleash the Inner Goddess. And I thought, well, I don't think it's uh, picking up Gnosticism per se, but... I thought, man, Gnosticism would love that in some ways. That there is in each, well, actually not in every human being according to Gnostics, only those who realize it, that there is a bit of divinity. And the real you is that in, in, inner soul. It's not your body. Your body is destined for destruction. It's actually evil. And uh, the... They, they, the, the, the central problem with human beings is you just don't know who you really are. And the moment you realize who you are, then you're saved. You're saved by this idea that I am destined, my, inner, my, my real me, this inner part of me, is destined to return to God. And uh, so it undermines the biblical understanding of creation. Uh, the early church is already wrestling with this in the, in the New Testament. Before the ink of the New Testament is dry, there are what we were called heretics or errorists, men who are committed to teaching a fundamental error that is undermining the gospel. First Timothy 4, um, the Spirit expressly says in the latter times there will come some uh, who will deny that certain foods can be eaten and the goodness of marriage. First uh, John uh, 4. Uh, if anybody comes to you and denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he is the Antichrist. I mean, it's very strong language. And it's obvious that uh, they're, not simply they're not only simply thinking of the future, they're alre already, John is already battling Gnostics. Uh, there was a very famous Gnostic. There's a, a story about John on one occasion when he was going to have a bath uh, in the public baths in Ephesus. And he comes into the bath. Uh, area, and uh, he sees a heretic named Serinthus, who was a famous Gnostic at the time, and John was with some of his friends and said, let's get out of here. And they said, why? Well, look over there, it's the, the her heretic Gnostic, uh, the Gnostic Serinthus, and in case God decides to judge Serinthus <laughs> at this point, bring the roof down, we don't want to be here when it happens, and they ran out of the, ba the bath uh, uh, establishment. 
And uh, they're already wrestling with uh, Gnosticism, um, this first major heresy that the church had to battle. And there are others. There have been others down through the years. Uh, but this is the first. And this is what forces the church to define, number one, what is heresy? And number two, uh, how, do we, how do we respond? And the man that we want to look at tonight is Irenaeus. So Irenaeus spelled I-N, oh, sorry, I-R-E-N-A-E-U-S. And it comes from the Greek word meaning peace. And uh, has, anybody, has anybody heard of Irenaeus before tonight? One, one person. Wow. Okay. Um, let me take. Let me do a different tack. John Calvin. Who has not heard of John Calvin? Well, everybody's heard of John. Martin Luther, John Wesley, and Irenaeus is as important as these men. And uh, he is the. He is. is the, he's in some ways the most important uh, theologian in the last. 30 years of the uh, second century. Um, he doesn't claim to be. He simply claims to be a pastor who is concerned about this, but there's no doubt in terms of all the writings we have, uh, he is the most uh, uh, powerful in terms of his writing. Um, he's also a deeply attractive figure in many ways, and the sad thing is we can sum up his biography in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes max, in terms of what we know about him. So he's born around the year 130. So this is about 30 years after Revelation was written, if you date Revelation to the 90s. Um, I tend to, although there is a recent argument, well, it's not so recent, about 40 years ago, that all of the books of the New Testament can be written before the fall of Jerusalem, before AD 70. And uh, I don't think Revelation was written then, but again, we, we don't have clear evidence one way or the other. Um, but within, a, within, within the lifetime of people who knew the apostles is when Irenaeus is born. In fact, the man who mentors Irenaeus, his pastor, is a man named Polycarp. Anybody heard of Polycarp? Oh, wow. Well, that's interesting. Why you, why you would have heard of Polycarp? Maybe because he's, he was... Oh, from me. Okay. 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 So Polycarp, uh, Polycarp was born in 69 or 70. We know that pretty clearly because we know he died as a martyr in 155 or 156. And in the account of his martyrdom, he mentions he was 86 when he was martyred by the Romans. Uh, the Romans uh, tried to convince him to deny Christ. And he says, for 86 years, I've served my Savior. So he actually probably might have been older. Uh, it's interesting, a number of the bishops in the early church, by the way, uh, the people debate about this, oh, I, and I, probably I shouldn't go down this route given what's happened recently at West Island, but uh, in the early church, you have bishops into their 70s, 80s. Uh, the idea of retirement is not a factor, and I probably shouldn't go down that route. <laughs> Sometimes I start down talking, it's not planned, and I thought, oh, yeah, that, that probably shouldn't have. I'm not making any comment about the current context. Uh, just the early church and past ages different. And um, uh, Polycarp was probably older than uh, 86, but when he was placed on trial in 155, 156, 
uh, and he's asked to deny Christ, he says, how can I deny my Lord who has been so good to me for 86 years? And uh, Polycarp knew John. Polycarp either came to faith under the preaching of John um, or he was mentored by John. John was his pastoral leader in Ephesus. And uh, Polycarp would eventually move from Ephesus to a little place called Smyrna, S-M-Y-R-N-A. It's now the Turkish town of Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R. And it's probably most famous in the 20th century for there being an enormous massacre of Christians in 1921-22. A lot of them Armenian Christians by the Turkish government, uh, which the Turks have completely denied. They, they, they maintain to this day all of them Armenians that were killed in that period never happened. And uh, it's very, very, very disturbing, but that's another story, obviously. And uh, all of the cities along the the coastal area of Turkey the, that's on the Aegean Sea, which is the sea between Turkey and Greece, uh, they're all Greek settlements. They were all originally founded by Greeks. And uh, Smyrna was a very famous uh, town on the coast, and he'll eventually become the pastor of Smyrna. And he'll tell Irenaeus, um, I, my memory about John is so vivid. I, I can remember how he would come into a room. I can remember how he walked, how he would sit to teach, um, unlike uh, this, if this was the early church, right? This is the this was uh, a, a 180, in, where say where uh, Irenaeus was teaching in what is now France. All of you would be standing, and I would be sitting. Um, pastors, uh, teachers sat, and congregations stood. And there's a great little. Um, a great little letter of Augustine many years later. Augustine, uh, in one of his sermons, he, he's, the congregation has been worshiping for about 50 minutes before he gets up to preach. And he says, now, please, I know you've been standing for nearly an hour. Please get yourself in the frame as if you've just come in and you're fresh and you're ready to listen to me. And uh, if you've ever been to a, I be, I remember going to a Serbian Orthodox wedding, no pews, no chairs. And I, I don't know what they do when people get into their senior years, as I'm getting. I'm, I guess I'm now a senior, and uh, and it's a challenge to stand for that length of time, right? And uh, but anyway, that that would be the early church. And uh, Polycarp said, I can remember how John would come in and sit. And how he would teach. And a number of the stories we've got about John, the one about the bathhouse that I just mentioned, it comes from Polycarp. And we have a number of stories about John. On another occasion, one time, somebody who was basically really kind of overzealous in their ministry. And John said to him, you're really kind of overdoing it. You need to be like a bow. And, you know, bow, bow and arrow. And he said, if you want to keep the bow in shape, you never, you, you, when you're not using the bow, you unle- un- unleash the, arrow, the, um, the, uh, the string. Otherwise, the bow is taut the whole time. In other words, you've got to relax sometimes. And uh, uh, so we have a number of stories, and Polycarp is the author of these. And Polycarp was uh, Irenaeus' mentor. Um, Irenaeus is born in Smyrna. He grows up in the church. We don't know when he came to Christ. We don't know anything about his conversion story. 
We know that somewhere around 150, he leaves Smyrna and he goes to live in Rome. And we have no idea why. Uh, we don't know if the church sent him there on kind of a mission. We don't know if he went there on business. Uh, we don't know if he went there for training. We don't know. We do know that when he was in Rome, that was when his friend and mentor, Polycarp, was martyred. And uh, we have an, an account. It's uh, uh, on one of the manuscripts of Polycarp's martyrdom. We have about seven or eight manuscripts of the, of the actual event. And this manuscript is housed in Moscow. It's interesting. <laughs> I'm very interested in why the communists, uh, at least historically, would want copies of Christian literature. And it's a very, very valuable manuscript. Probably would run if they ever sold it in the millions. So maybe that's why they want it. They're not interested in the teaching per se. Did you have a question? Yeah. Would it have already been there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. These were, these were inherited from the Russian Orthodox Church. And now the communists have taken and put it in one of their libraries. So oh, they yeah. didn't destroy it. Yeah. No, they didn't destroy it, which is fascinating. Yeah, that also is good. Um, and uh, at the end of it, there is an appendix that says that when Irenaeus was in Rome, that's when he heard that Polycarp had been martyred. So we know that somewhere around the year 150, uh, three or four years before Irenaeus is martyred, uh, Poly uh, three or four years before Polycarp is martyred, Irenaeus goes to Rome. He's in Rome for about 15 years. Um, the trip to Rome is important for him because that's where he meets some of the leading Gnostics. He gets to know them. And two in particular, Valentinus and Marcion. And uh, Marcion was the son of a very wealthy shipbuilder from Turkey, what is now Turkey, a multi-multi-millionaire. And he joined the church claimed to be a Christian, he had millions, gave it to the church, and then three or four years later, as things started to unfold in terms of his teaching, and he was up for being an elder, they found out, the guy's a heretic! And we're not going to point you as an elder. And, uh, and they eventually led to a trial, they expelled him from the church for his views, and they said, and we're giving you all your money back. Which is fascinating, they gave him all his money back. Um, and so that was during the period when Irenaeus was in Rome, and so he would have met these men. So when he writes his book against Gnosticism, he's writing it from first hand. He's, he's talked to these men and, and encountered them and so on. And somewhere around 160, the church at Rome, very missions-minded, they send uh, Irenaeus to what is now France, Lyon, in the Rhone Valley. Uh, the Rhone is a, a river a system that runs up from the Mediterranean, um, there are two major river systems in eastern France, the Seine coming down from the north, uh, from, uh, I guess, the English Channel, uh, the, whatever flows into the Seine, and then the Rhone uh, coming up from the, from the south. And he's in the Rhone Valley. Uh, Lyon is, the, the Roman name for Lyon is Lug, L-U-G, Dunum, D-U-N-U-M, Lug Dunum. And it's about 100,000 people. Uh, Rome is about a million Largest city in the world. Uh, I think I mentioned this earlier. Uh, uh, if you think of Toronto and you think of the area between the harbor, the Lake Ontario, and Bloor Street, and Sp the Sp uh, Spadina on the west and the Don Valley on the east, that's Rome. A million people in there. And I know there's no way there's a million there today. It was just jammed. 
And Lugdunum is a is a recent architecture has shown. It was kind of a miniature Rome. It had all of the the wealth, a lot of wealth. We've on uh, archaeologists have unearthed probably half a dozen very very wealthy villas, uh, villas that would be eight ten thousand square feet in in distribution that had indoor plumbing, where you'd have hot water. In uh, the Romans were really into bathing. Uh, I remember going to a, um, a uh, Roman villa near Gloucester in England, uh, a place called Sirencester. And uh, they had the whole bath area laid out. You had three baths, right? You had the, uh, uh, the tepidarium, which was kind of tepid. And then from there, you went into the caldarium, which was very hot. And the Romans had a way of, of, uh, of filtering water through uh, uh, kind of a furnace system that heated the water. And then from the caldarium, we went into the frigidarium. These are the real names, which is cold. And because uh, you, you've opened the pores, you've gotten rid of the dirt, and now you can plunge into the caldarium and kind of close the pores up. The Romans were really into bathing, uh, big time. Uh, when the Roman Empire falls, uh, somebody has said... Uh, Medi the medieval world is a thousand years without a bath. <laughs> and that's probably not a, that's not too far-fetched. Uh, Martin Luther, this is, I'm off to the side here. I'm on my rabbit trail. When Martin Luther got married in 1525 to Katharina von Bora, an ex-nun. He's an ex-monk. She's an ex-nun. Somebody said, Martin Martin's in his 40s. You know, he's still this whole life in, in the monastery. And now he's suddenly married to Katharina. And uh, somebody said, well, what, what has changed uh, in your life? Well, he said, before I got married, I might have a bath once a year. But he says, Katerina will not have it so. And maybe now had a bath twice a year. Who knows? Um, very different world. The, the Roman world, they are very much into cleanliness. Very much so. And uh, so we found about a half a dozen villas with very extensive uh, footprint in terms of the size of the villa and then also these various the, the, all of the amenities you could find in Rome um, Lugdunum was a military center so there was a, at least two Roman legions stationed there uh, it's not far from the frontier and it's an administrative center um, all of the believers in the church nearly all of them are Greek speakers initially and Irenaeus, his mother tongue is Greek. So he arrives there, and uh, the mother tongue of the people in the area around, some of, the, um, the, uh, some of them are going to be Romans, so they're Latin. But the rest of them are, it's a, it's a Celtic language called Gaulish. So in the pages I've handed out, look at the first page, and I'm going I'm to turn your attention to the second column on the first page. And uh, this is the introduction. It's a fascinating introduction on a number of levels. But look at the section three, second paragraph, page 359. You will not expect from me a resident among the Celts and mostly accustomed to a barbarous language, rhetorical skill, which I've never learned, nor power in writing, which I've not acquired, nor beauties of language and style, which I'm not acquainted with. Now, I think he's probably downplaying his skill a little. Maybe. But what's important for our purposes is that he spent his life learning Celtic. He spent, ever since, well, he would have come there. Sorry, not spent his life. He came there. He probably would have been around 
30 when he came. And learning another language in your 30s is a challenge. Um, any of you have ever been in a context trying to learn another language uh, is problematic. And you, you're very envious of children. Um, put them in a situation uh, where they're speaking another language. Their parents say, move to another country, and they pick it up like that. And the, part of the reason is that by the time, up until the, your mid-teens, your, your tongue is flexible. Uh, so languages have sounds, right, um, that uh, other languages don't have. So uh, the, language that, the other language I can speak to some degree is French, and uh, French has a number of sounds that we don't have in English. It's got about three or four sounds, and they're very difficult for an Anglo to make. And one of my brothers-in-law is a ling uh, linguist, not Graham, it's uh, his younger brother. And I remember David uh, telling me, now, Michael, you know, when you're trying to say this sound in French, your tongue needs to be here, and it needs to be hitting your upper palate. And you're kind of thinking, well, yeah, that's, that's exactly what has to happen, but you're, you're actually trying to speak a language and you can't be figuring out, okay, like, where's my tongue right now? <laughs> and um, it's difficult learning another language. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been, I used to go to Montreal, uh, teach at a French Baptist seminary there, Sembeck, um, every summer for about 25 years. And I loved going into some of the stores in the West Island because I could practice my French. Well, at least I, I thought I could. Uh, a lot of the ones in the West Island where this, the seminary used to be, there's a lot of Anglos there. So I remember going to, uh, to a restaurant once, and the person in front of me, um, the maitre d' came, spoke in French. Oh, this is great. Get to practice my French. And uh, I said, bonjour. Uh, immediately switches to English. <laughs> I mean, they can hear. Uh, the, same, the same is true for us, right? You hear the tone, the accent. I mean, I grew up in England. Uh, I hear the tone. I can hear tones of people from the British Isles and the various dialects. I can usually place most of them broadly. And uh, you, you pick these things up instinctively. And it, it's very, very difficult to speak a language as a native, especially when you're trying to learn it when you're older. And so he would have struggled, I can imagine, especially Celtic, because it's a Celtic language. Uh, so it's a Gaulish no longer exists. Uh, I mean, a lot of people complain today about English destroying languages around the world. Hey, the Romans did this. Uh, Latin got spoken as the lingua franca and native languages disappeared. And Gaulish would have been akin to Irish, Scottish Gaelic, Welsh, Manx, which was used to be spoken on the Isle of Man, Cornish. Nobody speaks Cornish anymore. I think the last person... Oh, they, they, they started bringing it back. They have started. That's right. Yeah. Putting signposts. In Cornish. And it's like, are you really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very that's the one, that's the one, one of, one of three counties in England I've never been to. Yes. And uh, I'd love to go to Cornwall. But yeah. It's um, sorry? It's, it's very hip yeah. to your signage in, in Cornish the, in this language that only a few people speak. Yeah, the last native speaker died around like 1900, and then I think they've resurrected it. I think so. Yeah, so it's not like Welsh and Irish Gaelic where you've had a constituency mm -hmm. con and Scottish Gaelic. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I'm not sure how many people speak Manx, and then the other Celtic language is Breton uh, in Brittany. 
And Gaulish used to be akin to these. It dies, it's died out, uh, completely absorbed into Roman, Latin, and then into French. Um, and so he, he's learning another language to preach the gospel to these Celts in their mother tongue. And it's quite clear he's, he's a missionary in the Rhone Valley. So the Rhone, Lugdunum was a very important um, economic center, very lot of wealth, a uh, very important Roman administrative center. And uh, the bishop of Lugdunum, uh, there, was, uh, there would have been a number of house churches and one bishop, we'll talk a little bit about bishops in a minute, uh, is a man named Pothinus, P-O-T-H-I-N-U-S, Pothinus. And uh, when um, uh, Irenaeus gets there, he's around 75, okay? And he stays bishop till he's 90, and he dies in 177. We know exactly when he died and how he died. Um, <clears throat> we know, so we know that uh, uh, Irenaeus comes to Lugdunum or Lyon. I should have mentioned that it's Lyon. It's the city of Lyon. He comes to Lyon, and let me use Lyon, um, around 160. And then uh, his ministry would have been preaching, teaching, evangelism in houses, Probably not in the open air because Christianity is illegal. And then in the, in the year 177, he is asked to go to, back to Rome on some sort of trip. And while he's away, he's away for about four months, there is an attack on the church. And um, it starts with a number of pagans putting uh, restrictions on where Christians can go in the city and then banning them from the public square and then arresting and between the churches at Lyon and a little village, a little town called Vienne, not Vienna, but Vienne, V-I-E-N-N-E, -N -N -E, about 40 Christians are arrested and martyred. And we have that account. And um, one of the most, it's actually one of the most horrifying uh, texts in the ancient literature that we have of what happens to the bishop. So you have to understand that in Rome, <clears throat> in Roman culture and Greek culture, one of the most important of values was respect for the elderly. It's absolutely bedrock. Um, it'd be similar in our culture to respect for a woman who is expecting a child. Because um, I think our culture has shifted away from respect for the elderly. Uh, and I'm not saying this because I'm now old. I'm getting old. It's because I, I think it's a reality. I don't think the elderly in our culture are regarded the way they would have been in, say, Chinese, Confucian Chinese culture or in uh, a Greek and Roman. And so you've got this innate respect for the elderly. Pothinus is arrested as the, as, as the ringleader of the Christians. He's the bishop. And the, te the account that we have of his death, they drag him through the streets. They don't just walk him through. They're dragging him. And bystanders are doing all they can to punch him and kick him. And the, it's only a paragraph, but it's absolutely horrifying when you, you visualize it. And what's horrifying about it is, to put it in our terms, it would be like somebody who was eight months pregnant being arrested and bystanders trying to kick her and punch her. I mean, it's absolutely unthinkable. I mean, everything in you 
when you, you, get, you visualize that image in your mind, everything in you revolts from it. it, it you just don't think this will be utterly inhuman. But that's exactly what happens. And he, he's, he's, he, he, doesn't, he never gets to trial. Um, he has asthma and he dies in prison, not surprisingly. And it's really just, a, you, you ask the question, like, what would stir people to do this? Well, there is this deep-seated hatred for Christians. They don't know, they know nothing about them, really, most of them. But these, these are people, the rumors would go around, we, we looked at this, these are people who are into cannibalism, into incest, they hate the human race, <clears throat> and they, we need to rid our society of them. It's no wonder the account that we have of their deaths begins by Satan swooped down and attacked the church. Because as the church later thought about, like what happened during that four-month period when 40 of our brothers and sisters were martyred brutally? Uh, it could only have been Satan stirring up people, people's hatred. And uh, the, the account is very detailed uh, in terms of the people who die. Uh, one of them is a woman named Blandina, and uh, the Romans crucify her in the arena. <clears throat> and what's really a fabu fabulous about this account is it, we, we, we read that the, the believers who died drew strength from looking upon Blandina and seeing in her their savior. Not Bl Blandina is not the savior. In other words, the, the hero of the story is Christ. It's not, it's not the martyrs. It's very easy when you read the martyrdom accounts, to think, oh, these are heroes. But the hero of every martyrdom account is our Lord. It's his grace. Uh, sometimes I'm, when I, I'll have students read the, this account, and then I'll ask a, a number of questions about the text, and I usually end with, if you were in that situation, could you, could you be true to Christ? And it's interesting that the answers. And the answer I'm looking for is not in myself, but only by the grace of God. And we are thankful that, uh, first of all, we don't live in that context in one sense. At this point, there are Christians who do. But we are thankful that God will give grace <clears throat> at the time that we need it. And, I mean, the idea of, of going through that is just horrifying to us. But if he calls us to that, he will give grace at the time. Do not be afraid what you will say when they drag you before rulers. The spirit in you will speak at that time. And uh, see, Ernest gets back, and the church has been decimated. And he is elected bishop. And it may, I think it's him who writes the account. Uh, it's anonymous. It's recorded in a book written in the 300s by a man named Eusebius, a historian, Eusebius Caesarea. And he says, I, I'm now going to record the account of what happened at Lyon in 177. And I think it's Irenaeus who writes it. Um, and then within a few years, Irenaeus writes this book that you've got a few extracts from, and we're going to look at that in a second. Um, we know that he wrote about 10 books. We have two. We've got this one, and we don't have a complete copy of this in Greek. He wrote in Greek. Uh, what he's saying in that passage I read earlier, don't expect from me any really kind of uh, high-flying language. Um, I haven't been writing a lot in Greek. <laughs> I've been speaking Greek. And uh, so he's warning the reader, don't expect some, some masterpiece in Greek literature. Um, but it is a tremendous text theologically. 
And then uh, we don't have a complete text in Greek. We have a complete text in Latin. Somewhere in the 4th century, it was translated into Latin. In fact, the sections you're reading come from the Latin, not the Greek. And then we have, um, we have knowledge of nine other books or so. We have none of them. And uh, if you remember, when, when, a cop, when a book was written and published, there was usually one or two copies. And unless people copied it, it's, it's going to be very difficult for that book to survive. Uh, the only other book we have is uh, what we call a catechism. It's called On the Apostolic Preaching. And it's, got, it's a series of statements that you would teach a young Christian, about a hundred of them. And that was discovered in 1904 in a remote Armenian monastery in Armenian. And a lot of these monasteries in uh, Armenia, Greece, um, the monks aren't interested in all the books in their libraries. They're, they're, they've got all these fabulous books in their libraries. They're not interested in reading them. And uh, there was a scholar. It was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. A lot of these libraries were being opened up. And a scholar went to this Armenian library. And lo and behold, he found a book of Irenaeus in an Armenian translation. And so we have two books by Irenaeus. Um, the last time we see Irenaeus is in the 190s. The first man I think you can call the Bishop of Rome is a man named Victor. Up until that point, I think it's pretty clear there's about 70 house churches in Rome with elders, not one of whom can be described as the Bishop of Rome. In the year 190, there is a movement away from that model of government to one, one, one man in a city who's the bishop. And Victor is the first man. And Victor has found out that the churches in Ephesus, who have been planted by John 100 years earlier, celebrate Easter on a different day than he does. The churches in Ephesus use the lunar, lunar calendar, right, 13 months in the year. The Roman calendar has, is a solar calendar. And so Victor writes to the churches in Ephesus and says, um, uh, we celebrate Easter according to the solar calendar, and you need to also, because we celebrate Easter the way Peter did. And the churches in Ephesus write back, well, that may be, but we celebrate Easter the way John did. And Victor, Victor was on the verge of saying, if you don't celebrate Easter the way we are, we're cutting off fellowship with you. And Irenaeus, Irenaeus finds out about it, and he, said, he writes, we have a letter, he writes to Victor, and he says, Look, just get off your high horse. I mean, not exactly that, but I, you've got no business bossing them around. Let them do as they see fit. You know, if they want to celebrate Easter a week later, because the solar and lunar calendar are going to be different, right? So if, if you, according to a solar calendar, you might have already celebrated Easter, and they're yet, they're yet to have Passion Week, you know, the week of leading up to Good Friday and so on. And uh, Irenaeus basically says, look, you need to agree to disagree. Just, just let them, let them uh, do as they please. It's a very interesting event. It's called the Quarto Decaman Controversy. It's a very, very rare controversy. Uh, Q-U-A-R-T-O-D-E-C-I-M-A-N. Quarto Decaman Controversy. And it's a controversy over the right celebration of Easter. But what it's really about is authority. <clears throat> And it's the first time you hear a Roman leader saying, this is the way we do it, and everybody else should do it the way we do it. So, so the title bishop referred to an overseer of a group of house churches in the region? Yes. And that was like the top 
Yeah. In terms of hierarchy? Yeah, there's nobody higher than that at this point. Yeah. Okay, now I've kind of gone through all that. So how, does, how do you respond to heresy? And that's the last we see of Irenaeus. Uh, we don't know of anything else after that. According to tradition, he died as a martyr. Uh, we don't know that. Um, <clears throat> I find him an enormously attractive individual, and it's sad that we just we can't fill out a biography more. We can say a lot about his theology because we have this whole book, which is the refutation and the overthrow of knowledge, falsely so-called. But you'll notice on page 359, the header, Irenaeus's Against Heresies. That's what we call the book, Against Heresies. Uh, you might want to read the early part. Um, he talks about Valentinus and so on and some of the Gnostics. But let me jump over to page 360. And I'm going to outline for you, um, how, do you how do we respond to false teaching? And uh, there are three or four things that Irenaeus does, one of which we probably, well, we might disagree with. The first one is confessions. Look at page 360, and this, is, this comes from book one, section 10. Now, the church, although scattered over the whole civilized world to the end of the earth, received from the apostles and their disciples his faith in one God, the Father Almighty, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who has made flesh for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who through the prophets proclaimed the dispensations of God, the comings, the birth of a virgin, the, the suffering, actually the birth from a virgin, I would say, the suffering, the resurrection of the dead, it's obviously talking about our Lord, and the bodily reception of the heavens of the beloved Christ Jesus, our Lord, and it's coming from the heavens and the glory of the Father to restore all things and to raise up all flesh, that is the whole human race, so every knee may bow of things in heaven and earth and under the earth to Christ Jesus, our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the pleasure of the invisible Father. And every tongue may confess him, and that he may execute righteous judgment on all. The spiritual powers of wickedness and the angels who transgressed and fell into apostasy, and the godless and wicked and lawless and blasphemers among men, he will send into the eternal fire. But to the righteous and the holy and those who have kept his commandments and have remained in his love, some from the beginning of life, some since their repentance, he will by his grace give life incorruptible or incorrupt and will clothe them with eternal glory." Having received his preaching and his faith, as I've said, the church, although scattered in the whole world, carefully preserves it as if living in one house. She believes these things everywhere alike, as if she had but one heart and one soul, and so on. In other words, what you've got there is a confession. And um, there has been a, a tradition that developed in the 19th century among Baptists. Uh, we don't need confessions. Uh, we have a Bible. Um, no, no, no creed but the Bible. And, uh, of course, that's, that may work with certain groups who undermine the scriptures, but Jehovah's Witnesses believe the Bible. Right? They believe the Bible's inerrant. They believe the Bible's inspired. Obviously, it's their version, their translation, which has some errors in it. But they, if, you, if you ask them, do you believe the Bible? Yeah, of course we do. And uh, what the early church soon recognized was that when he was dealing with not, not all the Gnostics, because so some of the Gnostics junked the Old Testament, many of them did, but some of them twisted the scriptures. They said, oh yeah, we believe that. But they twisted the word of God. 
And Irenaeus said, it's, it's like we've been given a portrait of a king in the Bible. And I, I know they didn't have jigsaw puzzles in the ancient world, but it might help you to think like a jigsaw puzzle. So think of a jigsaw puzzle with a picture of our queen, our, our king, sorry, our king. And um, you put it in a box, right? It's all mixed up. And uh, there's only one way that goes together. And the, 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 the heretic comes along and somehow he forces bits in to, to, uh, to fit in places and it looks like a jumbled mess. And Irenaeus actually uses this example. He said it's like somebody is assembling a portrait of a person, a king, with various beautiful stones. And there's one true way it fits together. But the Gnostics come along and they, they twist it so the picture becomes the head of a fox or anything else. They're using the same materials. They're using the Bible, but they're forcing it to say something it doesn't say. And uh, so the church realized very, from the very beginning, if you're going to come into membership, and I know there's people who argue there's no such thing as membership in the early church. I disagree with that very strongly because there's very clear evidence. I think there's evidence in the New Testament, which I won't go into, but there's very clear evidence that the, in, the New, in the New Testament world, uh, there were all kinds of clubs where people kept membership lists. And I don't think, it's not far-fetched to think of the church having a membership role. Do you remember the widows in 1 Timothy 5? That if a woman is 60 years old, has served the Lord, has been faithful in her family life, she is to be enrolled in a group of widows. Which means she support, and she has no other people to support her. So there's an actual list of widows that the church would support. So the idea of a membership list is not foreign to the New Testament world. That's all I'm saying there. But whether or not you have a membership, they actually had membership lists. When you joined a church, however that was recorded, you would have to confess the faith, which is right here. And you confessed it in those days in baptism. And uh, one of the things that the early church did that we don't do as a Baptist church, we baptize, if you ever listen to the baptismal, what's going on in the baptism, do you believe in our Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes, I do. Upon your profession of faith, we baptize you. And he, the person goes down in the water once. But that's not the way the early church did it. You know, the church would ask, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth? And of all that it contains, yes, I do, you'd be plunged under water. Do you believe in God, the Lord Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us men and for our salvation became man, and died and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was raised from the dead on the third day, and will come again in the glory of the Father to judge the living and the dead? Yes, I do. <laughs> do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke to the prophets? And in the forgiveness of sins and the life of the world to come. Yes, I do. And you get plunged under three times. Uh, I'm not, please know what I'm not. I'm not urging we go back to that necessarily. But the, the baptism was a place where you confessed your faith. The baptism, baptism, these baptismal confessions was a place where people declared their commitment to the gospel in its basic fullness. So in other words, what, what Irenaeus is doing here. We, we, how do you safeguard the church? People have to confess the basics of the faith in a creed. 
Notice this is not, this is not, we have a, here at West Highland, we have a big confession. It's not all the details of that confession. It's the, creeds and confessions differ. A creed is a summary of the essentials. Uh, this is a Baptist church that has a congregationalist government where you have elders who lead the church, not elder rule, but elder led. That's right, elder led. And uh, we've got other elements in there. Um, and all that's in our statement of faith, right? Variety of things in our statement of faith. Uh, technically, can you join the church and you have a little quibble about an element of the statement of faith? Well, yes, in one sense, I think. Uh, if it's not about a, an essential issue. Um, so in the statement of faith, it's not exactly clear. And I'm, I'm, I know what I'm talking about because I was on the committee that wrote the statement of faith. Uh, there is the element there about particular redemption, that did, who, for whom did Christ die? It's implicit that Christ died for the elect. It's not exactly spelled out. Um, my wife, if you asked her, does she believe in the particular redemption? No, she does not. Uh, I do. Uh, I've learned to keep my mouth shut on the issue. <laughs> and um, I think that's a better part of wisdom. And yeah, I mean, that's fine. I'm, I'm cool with that. And, you know, because it's not, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's a, it, it is an important element in my mind, in certain, but it's a secondary issue. I say it's a tertiary issue. I think it's a tertiary issue. Yeah, I'm, I know I've got friends who disagree with me radically on that. Uh, for whom did Christ die? And for the elect. It is a particular redemption. When he died on the cross, he secured the salvation of his sheep. I believe that. But that's a tertiary issue. And um, so the a creed, a creed deals with the primary issues of the faith. And uh, I think it would be helpful for people, and we, we have a new covers class, right? We, where people go through, this is what we believe as a church. And it would be fabulous to, the only time I've ever seen this, interesting enough, was in an Anglican church. It was John Stott's church. Uh, he was with, he's gone to be with the Lord, but whoever is the minister there now, and it was a Sunday evening about five years ago, the last time I was in London, and I went to the church with some friends, and uh, there were two Chinese sisters being baptized. Now they were poor, but they asked them, do you believe on the, uh, the God, the Father? They did exactly this. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. And each time they, they poured water. And then uh, the there was a fourth question, which I also think we should ask. Do you reject, do you renounce Satan and all his works? And I think increasingly we, we probably should ask that of, of believers publicly. Because... Uh, uh, the world in which we live increasingly is there are people toying with the occult. You, you go into chapters like, and in, or indigos, I go there you're probably every couple of weeks. It's very dangerous. Uh, I've noticed that New Age section is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The philosophy section, which used to be three or four rows in your typical chapters, is now generally just one block. And the New Age is like three or four I normally don't pay much attention to it, but like those books must be selling. And people are buying books on the occult. And it's, it's disturbing. It's very disturbing. And it, it is a reminder to us that, that, if, that there is no such thing as a spiritual vacuum. If people do not believe the truth, they'll embrace all kinds of stuff. 
And so how, how do you respond to heresy? You have confessions of faith that people have to confess to be a member of a local church. So that's one thing. The second thing, obviously, is the scriptures. Notice, uh, look at the page 370 there. Um, For we learned the plan of our salvation from no others than from those through whom the gospel came to us. They first preached it abroad, and then later by the will of God, handed it down to us in writings to be the foundation and pillar of our faith. For it is not right to say that they preached before they had come to perfect knowledge, as some dare to say, boasting that they are the correctors of the apostles. These are the Gnostics. For after our Lord had risen from the dead, and they were clothed, these are the apostles, with power from on high when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were filled with all things and had perfect knowledge. They went out to the ends of the earth, preaching the good things that come to us from God, and proclaiming peace from heaven to men, all and each of them equally being in possession of the gospel of God. So Matthew, among the Hebrews, issued a writing of the gospel in their own tongue, while Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel of Rome and founding the church. And Actually, we would disagree with that. It's very interesting uh, he writes about 120 years, oh, about 150 years after the founding of the Church of Rome, and they've lost the memory of the fact that the Church at Rome was not founded by either Peter or Paul. There's no indication in the Bible that Peter or Paul founded the church. It's interesting that he has that there. Um, after their deceased, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, also handed down to us in writing what Peter had preached. Then Luke, the follower of Paul, recording the book, the gospel has been preached by him. Finally, John, the disciple of the Lord, who had also lain on his breast, himself published the gospel when he was residing at Ephesus, in Ephesus in Asia. Four gospels. There are no more. In other words, the other thing the early church is forced to do in the second century, what belongs to the New Testament? So I would ask you that. Well, you just have to go to the New Testament, right? Uh, you don't have to worry about, you know, uh, you know, what belongs to the New Testament. There are no New Testaments, as we know it, in the second century. There's no one book that contains them all. Um, what you have are scrolls, and the early church is seeking to understand what are the books that the Holy Spirit has inspired. And the Gnostics are claiming, oh, okay, there are actually more than four Gospels. There's also the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Philip. And the early church would have to come realize, no, no, they would test them. No, these are not what the Holy Spirit has inspired. They disagree with the Gospels we know the Spirit did inspire. And uh, uh, in Aaronius, if we had time, in Irenaeus' day, there... There is commitment. The New Testament comprises the four Gospels, the Book of Acts, the 13, 14 letters of Paul. He would include Hebrews as written by Paul. Um, 1 John, 1 Peter, Revelation. He doesn't, he never, as far as I know, he never quotes James or 2nd and 3rd John or 2nd Peter or Jude. And in fact, over the next 200 years, there are debates in the church exactly how many books are in the New Testament and what are they. And there are seven books that are debated about. There is Second uh, Peter, Second and Third John, James, Jude, Hebrews. Hebrews comes to be debated because who wrote it? And Revelation. Up until it be a long take us too far afield. Up until the probably the two fifties. Um, 
Nobody questioned Revelation. Going on from the 250s, a number of people questioned Revelation. And by the 350s, Revelation is dubious in the minds of some. And then the last 50 years of the 4th century, between around 350 and 400, there's two or three councils that determine the exact shape of the New Testament. Please note, they don't create it. They recognize what God has created, and they draw up lists that are identical to ours. But at this point, there are still debates. And again, what he's, what he's, what, the important thing here is how do you respond to heresy with Scripture? You need creeds, you need Scripture. Then thirdly, with bishops. And uh, the word bishop is a difficult word to translate uh, from the Greek. The Greek word is episkopos, E-P-I-S-C-O-P-O-S, episkopos. And uh, our word bishop actually is not a translation of that word. Our word bishop is a uh, transliteration. Um, if I had a board, um, I would write it on the board. Uh, so episkopos, E-P-I-S-K-O-P-O-S, is Greek. When it comes into Latin, the, the Latin-speaking churches don't translate it. They take it right over into Latin as E-P-I-S-C-O-P-U-S. And within three or four hundred years, uh, uh, the word in slang, common speech, becomes ebiscopos, E-B, not E-P, E-B-I-S-C-O-P-U-S, ebiscopos. B, you actually can do it in your mouth, B and P are labials. They're both formed in English with the, well, in any Indo-European language, with the lips. P, B. They're very close, and they often get mixed up. And so the Latin word then becomes ebiscopos. When that comes into Anglo-Saxon, which is our grandmother language, it's biscop, B-I-S-C-O-P. And so when the KJV men came along, bishop. It's not a translation. The translation that we normally use today is overseer. I'm not sure I like that. When I hear overseer, I think of some guy running a factory. Uh, we, you'll notice we never call our, uh, we never use that word in our circles, right? We have pastor, which doesn't come to be heavily used until the 18th century. And that's only used once or twice in the New Testament. Um, at the time of the Reformation, the common word was minister, which we don't normally use. I mean, I, I always talk about Pastor Mahaffey. I don't talk about our minister, John Mahaffey. Um, or we use the other word, presbyteros, elder. So John is an elder. But we don't use the episcopos word. Because uh, it would be really, think about it. So uh, who's your overseer? I mean, even, even the question sounds odd. Oh, my, our overseer is John Mahaffey. Our senior overseer is John. It just sounds weird, doesn't it? At least it does to me. And we've lost, we some, I, it's a very difficult word. It's, it's, a, it's a governmental term in Greek. It's a governmental term of a man who ran an area of, of, uh, of a province. Usually, the, probably the closest equivalent in English is a mayor. <laughs> so, who's the mayor of your church? <laughs> it, that doesn't go either. And so we, 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 we tend to simply say elder. Um, in the New Testament, there are two orders, right? 
There is elders who are also overseers. And then there's deacons. And um, what is happening, and Irenaeus is witness to it, what is happening is in local churches, one of the elders becomes called the bishop or the overseer or the episkopos. Why is that? It's because heresy, 95% of the time in the history of the church, comes from elders. It doesn't come from the people in the pew. It comes from teachers. And that's one of the... I've I've spent my whole life in seminaries, and that's why seminary and teaching young men who are going to become pastors is so absolutely vital. And I'm, it amazes me, I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm on a rabbit trail here. It amazes me how our churches want good pastors, but they won't support seminaries with the finances. And I was principal for four years at Toronto Baptist Seminary, and I, it, it, it amazed me. Oh, yeah, we, they would write, churches would write, write to us, do you have men to recommend? Well, we do. Do you think you can help us financially? Oh, yeah, well, we'll put you on for $100 a month. Like, really? Like, you really think that's going to... You know, we've got buildings, we've got men to pay, we've got salaries. The student, student salaries do not carry a seminary. I mean, sorry, student, student fees. Yeah, it doesn't carry a seminary. They pay $1,000 for a course. That doesn't carry it. There's no way. And... Um, so the early church realizing, okay, the men who became Gnostics were all elders, or men who came up be, wanted to be elders. So the answer was, okay, we'll have one man who will do all the preaching. We make sure he's solid, and we'll be safe. And um, well, probably about 15, 20 years ago, uh, all of this kind of clicked for me when I was studying what's called the fundamentalist modernist controversy here in Ontario. When Baptists went through it, we went through a horrific fight with McMaster University because McMaster University, the Divinity College, what well, was the Divinity Wing, started going liberal. And about uh, 75 church, Baptist churches in Ontario fought a battle for three years against what was going on at McMaster. And one of the things that happened in that battle was you saw how Baptist churches would invest one man in the church with all kinds of authority, and he was the only one who preached. And the classic case is Jarvis Street with T.T. Shields. And uh, the man became like a bishop. And in fact, T.T. was, people criticize, if you know the name or you know anything of his history, T.T. Shields was criticized, the Pope of Jarvis Street. And what occurred to me was, when churches are in, are in battles for their lives against heresy, this is one of the, the methods that they will do to make sure the pulpit is kept safe. They will, they'll have one man who does most of the preaching. I, I think it's natural, but that's one of the reasons why you get the emergence of bishops. And uh, the reality is... Uh, uh, more recently, I've started thinking along these lines. Whether or not you have people who are bishops, you nonetheless have men who emerge who have a significant influence and authority. So John MacArthur, 
Like he's a pastor of a local church. The guy's a bishop, really, when you think of it. In Southern California, I mean, I have friends in Southern California, and when John says something, these churches listen. John Piper, uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, you could go on. Uh, here in the fellowship, we've had men in the past, Hal McBain, uh, Jack Scott. I don't know if any of you know these men, Hal McBain, Jack Scott, um, Bob Holmes. Anybody? Bob Holmes was an interim here. I mean, these men had, they had it, they had credibility, they were great teachers, and they had authority. It wasn't the authority invested in an official office, but they had authority by virtue of the length of time that they had been preaching the gospel, respect and credibility, their knowledge of the faith, and so on. And uh, it strikes me that churches, communion of churches, like we're part of the fellowship, uh, we have in the fellowship men who have such authority. And whether you call them bishops or not, uh, in some ways that doesn't matter. With these sort of men emerge. And so that's, again, that's the third way that uh, Irenaeus uh, sees. How do you protect the church? You make sure you've got good teachers, men who know the faith and who will, who will die for the faith and who will see their responsibility. And Irenaeus, a number of places near Irenaeus, you get this impression from Irenaeus, he's not interested in being original. He has received the faith. He will preach it and hand it on. And uh, in, uh, in the academy where I, I serve, one of the challenges of being in an academic world is those who teach have to do a PhD. And when you do a PhD, it's supposed to be original, quote unquote. And you get this coming into Christian teachers. Oh, I've got to be original. I've got to say something new and fresh. No, no, you, you have to teach the faith for our day and pass it on. It's what you've received and so on. And the final thing uh, Irenaeus does is prayer. And uh, he gets this from 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, where Paul is dealing with false teachers. And he said, you need to be gentle with such men and pray, lest, pray that God might grant them repentance to believe the truth. So in the middle of this, and I, I, I was pressed for time and I couldn't find the text, but you'll have to listen to it. He has about four or five of these. He's writing along, and suddenly he stops and prays for the, the Gnostics he's writing against. It's very powerful. And let me give you one, if I can find it quickly. Here it is. This is the end of book three, which I've not given you. Uh, I call upon you, Lord God of Abraham and God of Isaac and Jacob and Israel, you who are the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God, who through the abundance of your mercy have been pleased with us that we might know you, you who made heaven and earth and rule over all things, you who are the only true God, above whom there is no other God, you who through our Lord Jesus Christ gave us the gift of the Spirit, now give to everyone who reads this writing to know that you are God alone, and that we may firm in you and reject every heretical doctrine that is godless and impious. And he prays. He prays to God. He prays in the middle of his, of, of, his, of his preaching, of his teaching, rather, in this book. So four ways that the early church dealt with heresy. Number one, confessions. Number two, the scriptures determining this is the canon of God's word. Number three, bishops. And as I said, we would probably disagree 
and I do disagree with the, the idea of a bishop formally uh, in terms of Episcopal structure, um, but we, they, they emerge anyway. Uh, but what I do see, at the, the principle here, is churches need, and it, we have this before us here at, uh, at uh, West Highland, it is absolutely vital who you call to be the senior pastor who will bear the burden of teaching. Absolutely vital. And especially given the size of our church and then the, the place that our church has in the city. If you know anything about the fellowship in the city, uh, there's no doubt this is the strongest church. And in many ways, the kind of center of fellowship life in the city, uh, etc. I won't go into all the details of that. And then the, the fourth area is prayer. And um, so when you count, encounter people, Jehovah's Witnesses sometimes at your door, um, I don't know how uh, active Mormons are. I, I, I don't think I've ever had any Mormon come to my door. In fact, I think I've only met a Mormon once or twice in my life. But Mormons, Muslims, I believe Muslims are heretics. I don't believe it's a completely different religion. I think Muslims have uh, taken the scriptures and chosen a bit here and a bit there. Uh, they confuse Miriam and Mary, and they have Mary in the Godhead. The Trinity is God the Father, Mary, and Jesus. It actually says that in the Quran. And they've, taken, they've done exactly what Irenaeus has said. They've taken that, that beautiful picture of our God and jumbled it up uh, to create something that is false. And uh, how do you deal with Muslims? Well, one of the things, you pray for them and you love them. And um, I have a very good friend who, from Iraq, he is a Syriac Orthodox uh, uh, priest. Uh, was, his bishop has recently kicked him out of the church because he, his congregation is being complaining. He, he, he preaches too long. He's always talking about the Bible and too much about Jesus. So the bishop has removed him. And uh, his, um, his brother was martyred by uh, by. This is difficult. My, my father's people are Kurdish. It was Kurds, Kurd, Muslim Kurds who killed his brother uh, in Erbil, I think it is, or maybe uh, Mosul. Um, but he has a love for Muslims. And it's, uh, it's uh, amazing. And so four, four, four kind of strategies. Confession of the, of the truth, the scriptures, the whole area of leadership. You don't want to talk about bishops. This is what becomes the bishop, but leadership and then prayer. Now, I've gone too long because we're right at 8.15, and I apologize for that. But uh, any, any questions before we uh, conclude? Just as an aside, uh, when I think of church membership, the idea of its purpose being to protect the church and the truth that it believes in, I think, is the most powerful argument for church membership that I've ever heard. Yeah, 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 I, yeah that's good. Yeah. Okay, next week we want to shift our focus a little bit. We're going to look at uh, a North African named Tertullian. Uh, one of the most, uh, I think, surprising things for people today as they study the early church is how important North Africa is, these various African leaders. And all of that is gone pretty well, except for the church in, in uh, Egypt. Um, but we're going to look at a man named Tertullian and his, his early his life uh, in um, uh, Carthage.
And um, in fact, the next, probably the next few weeks, we're going to be in North Africa because we're going to, after Tertullian, we're going to look at Cyprian. Okay, let me close with a word of prayer. Father, again, we are thankful to you that we are the recipients of your word and that you have seen fit to open our eyes to know you through our Lord Jesus and to be the recipients of scripture and a rich heritage. And we thank you for this brother, Irenaeus, who lives in your presence. And we pray that as we have thought about his life and his day, that you would use that thinking and reflection to help us in our day. Uh, we do pray for our church. Pray that you would bring to uh, West Highland uh, the man that you would have uh, to lead us in the days to come, who would be solid in your word and love your word and preach it. And we ask these mercies for Jesus' sake. Amen.